and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 21st of October with me, Ian Welsh. As part of our ongoing series of conversations looking at the future of commodity supply chains with Cargill, a few days ago I talked with Rupert Day, Farmer Livelihood Advisor at Cargill Cocoa and Chocolate, about some of the innovations he's seeing in the cocoa sector and the importance, as ever, of keeping consideration of producers' incomes front and centre of supply chain strategy. And at Innovation Forum's Future of Plastics and Packaging Conference in Amsterdam a couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Christina Dixon, Ocean Campaign Leader at the Environmental Investigation Agency, and Jenny Vassenaar, CSO at Trivium Packaging. Some quick-fire insight is coming up. And, as is an update from Innovation Forum's Hannah Homari on what to expect at our flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference coming up in a couple of weeks. First, though, is some sustainable business news. WWF's latest Living Planet report makes depressing reading. The average population decline for animals globally has risen to 69% since 1970. In the previous edition of the report in 2020, the decline was an average of 68%. Latin America and the Caribbean have been particularly badly hit, with average wildlife population size declines of 94% over the same period. The UK has some spectacularly bad numbers. 97% of wildflower meadows have disappeared since the 1930s, and 92% of seagrass meadows. WWF says that in most cases, species decline can be reversed, but continued trends of decline make this more and more less likely. Also stressed in the report is the continued disconnect between increasing nature loss and global commitments to boost biodiversity. A new Paris Climate Agreement-style arrangement for nature was due to have been agreed by 2020, but after lengthy delays exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, the final set of negotiations are set for meetings in Montreal this coming December. The potential for chemical recycling of plastic waste was debated at some length at Innovation Forum's recent Future of Plastics and Packaging Conference, and there is growing demand, according to a new letter from the Consumer Goods Forum's Coalition of Action on Plastic Waste, including big FMCG companies such as Mars, PepsiCo and Unilever. The CGF coalition says that they will, between them, need 800,000 tonnes of chemically recycled plastic packaging materials in 2030. The group is making such a statement to drive the development of credible, safe and environmentally sound chemical recycling infrastructure. There are as yet not many commercial chemical recycling facilities. The majority of plastic recycling remains physical. Certainly, a rapid scale-up is required to meet the potential demand. CGF estimates released earlier this year state that 60 to 70 medium-sized chemical recycling facilities will be needed online in Europe alone by 2030 to meet the consumer goods sector's demands. Net Zero Tracker, which follows the 2,000 largest publicly traded companies worldwide, has done some research into the climate plans of the biggest private companies, and has found that when compared to the 100 largest public businesses, there is a significant lag. Only 32 of the private companies have net zero plans compared to 69% of the publicly listed ones. All 10 of the biggest public companies have net zero targets, none of the top 10 private companies. Net Zero Tracker also found similar difference in the credibility and integrity of climate plans and goals. Innovation Forum's flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Communities Forum returns very soon, on the 1st and 2nd of November in Amsterdam. As ever, the agenda will have an emphasis on open, candid debate and discussion. To find out a bit more about what to expect at the event, I caught up with Innovation Forum's Hannah Halmari. Welcome back to the podcast, Hannah. Thanks, Ian. It's good to be back. So it's all coming up very quickly now, isn't it? Tell me a little bit about how the event is coming together. Yeah, so we're just two weeks out now and everything's looking great. We have over 60 fantastic speakers confirmed and we're looking to be around 300 people in total at the event. It'll for sure be a full two days packed with lots of interesting debate and discussion. Yeah, looking forward to it very much. And it's great to be so many people there in Amsterdam on the 1st, 2nd of November. What should the attendees expect? 
Over the two days, we'll be running a variety of session formats from main stage plenaries to more focused breakout sessions. And we're also running two workshops. So we'll have a workshop on attracting private investment for sustainable landscapes that'll be run by IDH and WWF. And then we also have a workshop on smallholders and purpose-driven products. So why have difficult suppliers in your supply chain? And as with all of our events, all the sessions will be held under Chatham House's rules, so you can expect honest and open debates on the key sustainability challenges within commodity supply chains. And as always, we'll maintain a practical focus as we assess solutions and opportunities and really look how we can make real impact on the ground. I think it's worth emphasising the fact that there are going to be lots of change of pace across the two days. We've got some plenary sessions, workshops, as you say, some breakout, lots of different types of sessions, some Q&A sessions, lots of change of pace just to keep things interesting across the two days. So are there any last minute additions to the agenda, Hannah? Yes. So we've confirmed a final few speakers from the likes of Conservation International, Waitrose and Partners, Rabobank, Technoserve and Caring. And you can, of course, check out the full speaker list online on the conference website. How can our listeners get involved? We are fast approaching the capacity of the venue, but we do still have a handful of delegate passes remaining. If you're planning to attend, we do recommend that you book your ticket as soon as possible. And you can register on the conference website. And then we also do have group booking discounts available. So please do reach out to me at hannah.holmari at innovationforum.co.uk for any more information on these or with any questions. We do get lots of people coming now in groups from businesses. So they do bring all their colleagues. It's a, it means then you can attend all the sessions. We'll have four strand breakouts afternoon of the first day. So it's very much worth bringing your colleagues if you're coming along or if you're in Amsterdam, do come and join us. Hannah, looking forward to it very much. Likewise. Thanks, Ian. And I do hope that many podcast listeners can join us in Amsterdam for what will be a fascinating couple of days. Innovation Forum was, of course, in Amsterdam earlier this month for the Future of Plastics and Packaging event. While I was there, I grabbed a few minutes with Christina Dixon, Ocean Campaign Leader at the Environmental Investigation Agency, and Jenny Vassenaar, CSO at Trivium Packaging. Joining me just now is Christina Dixon, Ocean Campaign Lead with the Environment Investigation Agency. Welcome to the conference. Thank you. We've just been on a session looking at legislation as an opportunity and how business can utilise incoming regulation to drive effective action. From your perspective, what can business do to influence policy effectively? Yeah, it's a really good question because we do a lot of work at the Environmental Investigation Agency collecting evidence. So from that's both from field investigations, but also from analysis, desktop research, and also generally engaging with, for example, companies to look at things like, in this context, like the plastic footprint, um, progress towards targets. And one of the things that keeps coming up is what is the relationship between company action and policy? You sort of can't have one without the other. Companies face a real risk if they want to set up a new infrastructure or a solution to plastic pollution. If they're not bringing the whole sector with them or if they don't have a kind of enabling policy environment which can help drive that action. For example, like policy frameworks can stimulate things like investment. So there's a benefit to companies to having regulation in some contexts. So this kind of comes up quite a lot. And our work, for example, with UK retailers involves looking at the plastic footprint, looking at progress towards plastic reduction, but then also looking at what's really missing in policymaking. And something that we've really taken away from our work over the past sort of three or four years looking at that is, first of all, using the kind of experience of the retailers and the FMCGs that we work with to inform our recommendations, like when the UK or the EU is revising different regulations. So at the moment, the Packaging and Packaging Waste Directive, the Waste Shipment Regulation, and the Environment Act targets, for example, in the UK, using that information to inform that process 
process, but also really encouraging the businesses themselves to be ambassadors, essentially to be lobbyists. And of course, they're often working through associations to inform policy processes as well. And there's a lot out there that suggests nefarious um, ambitions, I guess, of companies to greenwash or uh, deliberately lobby against legislation in certain markets. Obviously not in favour of that, but what we are in favour of is bringing that experience and taking it into the policy-making space and so working collaboratively to have essentially champions within the sector. And not all companies are going to want to be doing the most ambitious thing, but there are companies that are actually, you know, they're very forward-thinking, they've got a vision, but they lack the investment and the kind of sectoral support to be driving change. So in the global treaty space, for example, we've seen a number of um, FMCGs actually really come out and attend the negotiations and these are like multi-day quite dry negotiations about plastics policy but FMCGs like Nestle, Unilever saying you know actually we think this is so important because this is going to be the enabling piece of legislation which transforms the plastic economy for generations to come and we actually should be there and we should not just be represented by for example plastic producers who also are out in force lobbying around the plastics treaty but there's a real difference in ambition between the different elements of the plastic value chain and so it's really important that those perspectives are heard when it comes to, to policy making particularly at the global level I would say. And I guess it's the point here is to mind, try and make sure that the companies that are being progressive and want to make and implement the change necessary are involved and then the others that perhaps are looking more to the short term are brought along with the regulation. Exactly because currently we exist in an environment where companies are potentially competitively really disadvantaged by trying to do the right thing. If they want to have for example like a comprehensive monitoring and reporting framework on plastic production use that requires resource. If they want to pilot and even scale up a reusable and refillable packaging system that requires investment in all of the machinery that would make that happen, the logistics, the staff, the retraining, and then the staff to monitor its implementation. So that's a huge cost. But we see things like reuse and refill as you know, some of the key tools in the toolbox for addressing plastic pollution. And it shouldn't really be on you know, individual retailers to be coming up with and designing a system for something which then they're implementing in isolation. Things like reusable packaging could have standards, which means that you could get your packaging from Tesco but return it to Sainsbury's, just as an example. But that's not in place because there isn't that policy framework to support that. There's a lot to do, isn't there? But for now, <laughs> Christina Dixon from the EIA. Thank you very much. I'm with Jenny Wassayar, CSO of Trivium Packaging. And we've just been having a discussion in a session looking at material dilemmas, how to navigate conflicting data points and avoid unintended consequences. Now, Jenny, as well as being CSO at Trivium Packaging, you're also, you've been leading on a World Business Council for Sustainable Development project around the packaging of the future. So tell me a bit about that. Of course, one of the things that you have to look at when you look at sustainability in packaging is not only a one-way street. We cannot make packaging decisions on only one tool or one process. So that's why we came together with the World Business Council Sustainable Development and investigated the areas that we think are mostly of concern when you look at packaging, so that we look beyond only, say, the life cycle assessment, but look more of a holistic approach towards sustainability in packaging. And we've identified through a member consultation process around six areas of major concern, or at least areas that you should check when you're developing new materials. The framework that we developed is sort of a wheel that can guide you to making more prominent packaging decisions. So the six areas that we think are very important are carbon footprint, of course, so life cycle assessment, still very important. Then also material efficiency, circularity, optimized end of life, 
harmful substances and finally biodiversity. So it's looking beyond standard tools or one tool, but just taking into account multiple areas to make your packaging decision. Now you mentioned something in the session, how in your view we need to get a beyond thinking just about life cycle assessment. Yeah. Why is that? I know you've got quite strong views on this, but tell us why you really think that we are focusing too much on life cycle assessments. Yeah, I think a life cycle assessment gives you a very good indication of the direction of your sustainability footprint or credential of your product. However, it's certainly not taking into account everything yet. I always say these tools, they were developed, or at least the basics for these tools were developed in the last century. So if we just lean on that when the world was still thinking linear, and while we're now currently in a circular economy, there is still a mismatch between what we actually want for the future and what we're leaning on at the moment. So one of the things that we should do is uh, these life cycle assessment, take them as a standard, as a basics. I'm, I'm not saying that you should totally forget about them, but you have to take into account that life cycle assessments can be completely different from tool to tool and also even if they are all ISO certified for example they can still come up with different numbers so you always as a packaging engineer you always have to make your own decision based on your tool and create reliable comparisons one of the things that I think it might be missing in life cycle assessments is certainly the circularity part that is not fully taken into account. So if you have materials that are infinitely recyclable, so cradle to cradle is not taken into account. And I think that's a strong miss. Another one is that if you look at the end of life area that I'm personally very passionate about because I want to make sure that we do not pollute the earth, that we keep materials in the loop. That is also not strongly, I say that, calculated through a life cycle assessment that can be improved. It's a very interesting way and clearly a much better way as we go forward looking at the impacts of materials and also making material choices. Just tell our, read our listeners, where can they find more information about the new framework that you developed with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development? So the World Business Council Sustainable Development developed a packaging framework, it's called Sphere. Yep. Uh, and it's available on the website, so if you just type in Sphere, the packaging sustainability framework, you will find it. There's also some interesting business cases that we've built on it already, together for example with Microsoft, where we did some comparisons already for one of their packages to show how you can actually implement this framework in your decision-making processes. Great, very much worth taking a look. We'll try and include a link to that in the podcast description. But Jenny from Trivium Packaging, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Ian. Coming up now is the next in our series of interviews with experts at global food and agriculture business Cargill. Recently, I spoke with Rupert Day, Farmer Livelihood Advisor at Cargill Cocoa and Chocolate, about the commitments for farmers within the Cargill Cocoa Promise and the need to align with broader rural development strategies. So we're going to be talking a little bit about Cargill's work in the cocoa sector and thinking about farmer livelihoods in particular. This all comes under the Cargill Cocoa Promise. Rupert, what is the Cargill Cocoa Promise and what's it trying to achieve? The Cargill Cocoa Promise is our commitment to cocoa farmers and their communities and looking to enable them to achieve better incomes and living standards whilst growing cocoa sustainably. The Cocoa Promise also serves as the delivery vehicle for our sustainability programming. It's active in all of our origin countries, which is Brazil, Cameroon, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana and Indonesia. And how does this link into Cargill's overall sustainability strategy then? Cargill itself has a global commitment to improve farmer livelihoods, and our work in cocoa is very closely aligned to that. Cargill globally works alongside farmers to increase economic, social and climate resilience of farming households, and we've set a global goal to provide training on sustainable agricultural practices and improve access to markets for 10 million farmers by 2030. 
For the cocoa sector then, how do you categorise the need for broader rural development strategies to help scale the capacity within the cocoa sector itself? How does it fit in with the kind of broader picture? We within the Cocoa Promise implement a holistic approach to improving income for cocoa farming households and farmer livelihoods is one of our key sustainability goals. Within that, we look to empower farmers to become agripreneurs who can maximise farm profitability and manage their farms as businesses. Now, as part of that holistic approach to ensure that farmers are able to build resilience to shocks and also sustainably increase their incomes, we really feel that there needs to be a closer alignment between our own investments and the investments of the cocoa sector in general and broader capacity development strategies that governments and development partners are developing to make sure that there's a stronger enabling environment for cocoa farming households to thrive in a strong rural economy. Why we see that as so important is that we really feel that there is an opportunity to crowd in other industries and other commodities in cocoa growing areas to capitalise on investments that we as Cargill are making, but indeed also our competitors, our brand customers, and also our development partners to really help professionalise smallholder producers and their member organisations. You mentioned shocks just now, resilience to shocks. What sort of shocks impact smallholder farmers? Smallholder farmers in general, then specifically in Cocoa? Smallholder farmers in general, I'm, I'm sure your listeners are also aware of some of the shocks that smallholders will face, such as weather, maybe personal tragedy, such as a loss of a family member. There are requirements around investments at household or community level, um, but also specifically within Cocoa, pest and disease is a big issue that we see. And also price shocks, of course, as well, especially in the economic climate we find ourselves in today. The risk of a price spike or price drop leaves cocoa farming households that are predominantly focusing on growing cocoa as their main source of income can leave them quite exposed to those types of shocks. And then what can you do to help then on, on terms of price shock? What we as Cargill push to do is we implement this holistic approach that I mentioned earlier, and that basically within Farmer Livelihoods focuses on four main areas. We do focus on making sure that farmers are able to maximise the profitability and productivity of their cocoa farms, first and foremost. And we do that through our training and coaching approach, which we roll out to all farmers within the Cargill Cocoa Promise. We also help facilitate access to resources, cocoa-focused inputs, but it's also access to information and indeed access to finance to enable the investments necessary at farm level. We also work on skills development, so financial and business management skills training to help households manage and grow more diverse incomes. And then as part of that, and indeed around this piece on resilience to shock and smoothing incomes, is we work a lot on income diversification. So looking at what opportunities there are on and off farm for cocoa farming households to diversify their incomes and work on viable opportunities to really build household resilience to those shocks and also increase their incomes in a sustainable manner. What typically are the income streams that cocoa farmers can diversify into? It's actually one of our biggest challenges is identifying really viable opportunities here that we can help scale. And it's certainly something, as I mentioned earlier, on this need for a bit more of a joined up approach that we think that to move beyond informal markets such as food crops and small livestock, etc., and actually help smallholders move into more than one structured supply chain is a really big challenge. That's for a number of reasons. I mean, as we as the cocoa sector know, rural infrastructure in cocoa growing areas is generally quite poor. There are generally limited opportunities for scaling approaches to providing opportunities for cash crop production and sale. One of the key growth areas I think we see is, is how we as the cocoa sector can work with government and development partners, but also other areas of the private agriculture sector to identify what these opportunities look like and how indeed we can help smallholder farmers and farming organisations work towards those. What have been the barriers then to that cross-sector collaboration that you mentioned? I mean, it's always been something that we've been talking about for some time, but it still feels like there's not a lot of it going on. What are the kind of barriers and how can they be got around? From the cocoa sector's perspective, I think one of the key barriers is competition and competition in the sense that we know that sustainability in the cocoa sector is increasingly important 
for our customers, for consumers, and for the development organizations that support us. And with that in mind, it can be that sustainability programs and ideas become a bit of a competitive asset. And I think what we need to move beyond there is to work out what's actually been working for ourselves as the cocoa industry, but indeed for other sectors, and what opportunities are scalable in a viable manner. For me, that's one of the key barriers is that we really need to have a bit more of an open conversation around what strategies are being tried, what hasn't worked, and indeed what has worked and what what elements of approaches have worked and how we can scale those as an industry, but also supported by other key stakeholders. So much of this is about ensuring continuity and stability of supply in the long term. And if you don't collaborate to achieve that, then everyone's going to be impacted and have significant life shocks potentially in the future. Obviously, multi-stakeholder initiatives, big part of this sort of development, these sort of initiatives, this sort of progress. What multi-stakeholder initiatives are you involved with at the moment? Firstly, I think we see Dutch initiatives as a really essential part of what we do, both for collaborative action, building common understanding, and also, as I've just said, around this practical learning piece. So we're involved in a number of multi-stakeholder initiatives, such as the Cocoa and Forest Initiative, World Cocoa Foundation, European Cocoa Association, and the EU member state ISCO Sustainable Cocoa Initiatives. We, our reliance on these or our interest in these is demonstrated by the fact that, yeah, we're involved as a steering committee member in, in many of these. We're in various technical working groups and we're an active participant in workshops and events that these multi-stakeholder initiatives put on. What's the, been the progress on the Cocoa in the Forest Initiative? I mean, it launched with a great deal of excitement a few years ago. In fact, being a true multi-stakeholder initiative involving the governments of Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, all the right NGOs were involved all the right businesses and companies in the cocoa sector were involved. What's the progress been like? So I think one of the key pieces of progress that the CFI has made is finding this common language and analytical framework for us as an industry linked in with the work that WCF had done already through Cocoa Action. So having this clear M&E framework is a really key piece of progress because what it's helping the industry do is speak the same language and report on the same KPIs to enable a common analysis of progress. The next step is to assess indeed whether we are seeing progress and if so, what pieces of the progress have been most impactful and how can we scale those specific pieces of the initiative. We're coming up to the next round of action plans and roadmaps for CFI. So we as Cargo will be putting together our own towards the end of the year. And I think it'd be really important to reflect on what has worked in this first phase of CFI and what our vision is on the next four to five years. Strikes me that it's important to remember that fast progress is not something that's going to happen. It's going to take some time to get this right. If the Cocoa in the Forest Initiative is going to achieve what it's set out to do, then it is inevitably going to take some time to get all the detail lined up. And it's good to hear that progress is indeed being made. More broadly, what are the characteristics of a good multi-stakeholder initiative? So I think that it being an open forum is, first and foremost, what's most important, because I think we need a clear and open space to discuss challenges, successes and common goals. Having a range of voices in the room is very important. It shouldn't just be a talking shop for industry to talk through the issues we're having. It should also be an opportunity for other voices to come in and raise solutions or experience on a broader level. And I do think there's a risk if multi-stakeholder initiatives don't include organisations that aren't necessarily just involved in cocoa. I think there's a risk of it being a bit of a bubble or a bit of an echo chamber. And also what I really think is important is this willingness to look under the carpet of some of the initiatives that we're doing, really thinking about what has worked and what hasn't worked and being really frank on where we haven't succeeded and really bringing those concrete examples to these types of forums and being willing to share where we haven't succeeded and where our investments could have been put to a more effective use. And really moving beyond sustainability programming, being a a competitive asset and really just seeing how we as an industry are helping to move the needle and seeing how our own experience as an individual company or organisation can benefit others in a positive way. It does feel that there is increasingly an acceptance that talking about the failures of the past 
where things haven't worked well and why is in fact a very good way of taking things forward in a better way, very much the way that the solutions of the future can be found. Do you get the sense that there's a greater acceptance of that and realistically people being happy to share where things have gone wrong? Yes, from the more recent events that I've attended, certainly, I think that as we move towards have, trying to have a bit more of a common understanding of what approaches we should be implementing within COCO, I think that's also fed by the fact that this more holistic, and to use an IDH phrase, smart mix approach to intervention um, implementation around working in COCO, but also working on these other income levers that we really see as necessary to push progress on our collective goals and also to push progress on the impact that we want to see at smallholder level and smallholder organisational level that the opportunity to speak more frankly and indeed talk about the pilots or the innovations companies are trying either independently or as a collaborative piece. I really do feel there's some positive momentum there. I mean, I also do feel that it's not necessarily useful for us to just talk about the fact that some of our interventions haven't worked because it can be a little bit reductive in a sense. But I really do think that we need to identify which aspects of them have worked and indeed how we pull those pieces together into a bit more of an effective programme. With all that in mind, what will constitute success for the Cargo Cocoa Promise as we go forward? And how are you tracking progress? I think success for the Cocoa Promise is that our suppliers are able to manage their farms as businesses, they're able to support their families, and they're able to contribute to their communities, and they're able to produce cocoa and other products in a sustainable way and become part of a thriving cocoa sector. We have that as our long-term vision, but of course we need to think about what impact we're having in the short term and indeed how we can analyse whether our approaches are having the impact that we would like. Now, we track progress in a number of ways, but primarily we do that through the collection and analysis of quantitative and qualitative data, both at farmer, community, and also farmer organisational level. And we mainly do that through surveys on a one-to-one basis on an annual frequency. We then use that information and we analyse it predominantly in-house using our data analytical capabilities. And we use that analysis to influence our sustainability programming, whether that be us as Cargill or indeed what we discuss with our customers around where we think their investments will be best put to achieve the impact at five organisation level that we would like to see. We also work with organisations like IDH to assess the effectiveness and impact of our approaches and again, try to gain better insights into how we can iterate our programming from an operational and a technical perspective to achieve the goals that we want to achieve in the long term. It should be great to hear more about Cargo Corporate Promise and particularly what you're doing around smallholder livelihoods. Always interested to hear the detail because there's always so much there. But for now, Rupert Day from Cargo, thanks very much. Thanks, Ian. And Rupert Day will be among the expert panellists attending the Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum in Amsterdam. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the detail about that, as well as the latest analysis and interviews. Do look out for the latest Business and Climate Change column from Mike Scott, recently published, this time looking at aviation. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye. Thank you.